I'm going to go ahead and open us up in prayer. I'll tell you, I'm excited, guys. I, I'll be honest, I was a little stressed today trying to finish up prep to, to, to preach tonight. Um, but I am excited. I'm excited for this book because I've told you uh, many times over the last... You can keep playing. I love it. Thanks, Aaron. <laughs> I've told you many times, um, and I'm more convinced now than ever that Revelation is the book of comfort. It's not the book of fear. It's not the book of, of mystery in the sense that you, we've got to be unsure of what's coming and, and we're never going to really grasp it or, or that there's, there's just a, a confusion. Now, there is a lot of interpretations, which is what we're going to talk about tonight, but it's a book that's ultimately meant, no matter what your interpretation, it's a book that's meant to comfort the true Christian. Because at the heart of the book is this. Jesus is coming back. And God's going to win. And no matter what happens, no matter what tribulation, no matter what suffering may come, at the end of the day, God's kingdom will stand. And it is an everlasting kingdom. Never again will the realms of men overpower the kingdom of God. Never again will the dark kingdoms of this earth reign. But in, in place of all those things, the kingdom of God will stand forever. That's the heart of Revelation. And even when it's mysterious, even when it feels confusing, the book is leading us towards one end, which is this. At one day... We can say in the fullness of truth that God is our God, we are his people, and he will dwell among us. I'm excited to start this book with you, and I hope by the end of it you'll see that this is the book of comfort because the Christian reads it and they're reminded that God wins. That's the hope that we have, that we too will be resurrected like Christ and live with him forever. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Thank you, thank you for your word. And we're thankful that as we read the book of Revelation, we're taken back behind the veil. And we see things from a cosmic perspective. We see who you are. We see you reigning on the throne. And we see your kingdom coming. That all the small, little, insignificant things we think of, the, the person being a jerk to us at our job, or the, the offensive words someone said to us, all these small little things that just are part of being human, they all fade away in the glory of what you've accomplished that all our sufferings, though meaningful, don't change the outcome. Even death itself submits to you. For your king. And so we pray tonight, as the book of Revelation tells us to. Jesus, come quickly. 
We ask you, Lord, come quick. We await your coming to consummate all things, to rid this world of evil, and to make this place the home of good, the home of your people, the home of righteousness, and ultimately the place where you dwell with us. We long for that day. Godspeed, it's coming. In Jesus' name, and by the power of the Spirit that is drawing us into that day. Amen. Lord, we do thank you, as Aaron said. Lord, we're thankful. That's what we've committed this year. We're going to be thankful. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Be thankful in everything that you do. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 5. We looked at 16 to 18 there. God, we're thankful for that verse, and we're thankful for this year, thinking of that as kind of a theme for this next year, God. We're going to be thankful. We're going to be thankful for what you've given us. We have so much to be grateful for, Lord. And in the midst of darkness, we're going to continue to focus on the light. We're going to continue to focus on you. Lord, that you would make our hearts a people of gratitude. We would not like, be like the people in the wilderness that grumbled and complained about you, God, Lord. Lord, we want to be people of gratitude, grateful for what you've done. And so I pray you'd help us to do that this year, Lord. We're thankful. We're thankful to start this new series on Revelation. We're thankful to be together tonight, God. We're thankful for the wonderful worship Aaron and Tyler just led us in. God, I pray tonight you'd be here. Most of all, we're thankful that you are with us. We're not alone. You are here with us, and you are both with us, among us, and in us. So we're grateful for that. Spirit, would you please give me your words tonight as we, we look at your word? I know it's, it's kind of a different night going through some terms and definitions, but God, would you help me to make it uh, enjoyable? Would you help me to make it something that people will benefit from, something that's not just dry and boring, but with the life of your, your very spirit, give us insight into your word and insight as we study these theological realities, God. Help us tonight. We, we pray your, your hand would be upon us, Lord. Give me the words. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. That was wonderful. Well, tonight, uh, like I've said, we finally get to start our, seri our series on Revelation. Much, much heralded, much talked about. I guess we'll see what tonight's like for the first night. Um, as you can see, this, this uh, beautiful and yet horrific picture... That's kind of our background here to the story of Revelation. I chose this image because I, I felt like it told exactly what I wanted, which is that even in the midst, I, I know it looks strange, it looks paradoxical, right? You see this picture of these lions coming out to eat all these people, right? It's a ravenous lion. He's about to, to murder all these people. He's about to eat them in the Colosseum. And that's a horrific picture, and yet you have it juxtaposed with me writing the book of comfort right there over it. Uh, I get that's paradoxical, but that's the book of Revelation. That's actually the Christian existence, isn't it? 
Because no matter what comes upon us, we recognize that the Lord is still with us. He's still guiding us, that we are not subject to, to truly, we're not subject to death, right? That, that there is a life that goes beyond just what this earthly presence is. And so even in the midst of this horrific circumstance, you see the elder among the people there looking up to heaven, everyone else bowing their heads in prayer. I love that. Because the situation doesn't matter. God's got us. God's with us. And we can be comforted even in the midst of this great suffering, like this picture says. But I also told you, sometimes I feel like the reason uh, the book of Revelation is not a book of comfort, it's not a book of hope to, to people, and particularly, I'll admit, to people in America specifically, I think it's not a book of hope often because... Uh, we haven't suffered much, generally. You look at the history of the world, you look at the history of Christians even, specifically, and they have had some horrible, horrible sufferings. And one thing we forget as Americans is that we live a generally comfortable life. You know, like I said, our complaints are few and far between. Well, we may do a lot of complaining, but objectively, our complaints should be few and far between. We live a good life. We, we generally have, you know, enough to eat, and we have a home, and we have, you know, all these wonderful blessings. That's not true of everyone. That's not true of everyone in this world today, let alone throughout history, right? And so one of the things that I committed to for this to be a book of comfort is I say we need to get in the mindset to have this be a book of comfort. And what we need to get into is the mindset of suffering, for us to understand Revelation as a book of comfort, for us to understand what it means that, oh, God's going to judge evil, and to hear that as hope, you have to look at it as someone who suffered. You have to look at it as someone who's being vindicated, who's being justified by the fact that God is punishing their enemies. That's hard for us to understand as Americans. It's just not generally how we think. So one of the things I committed in this series is that every week I was going to read a martyr story to open us up. That's one of the things I wanted this series to be about. And so every week I'm going to do that for approximately the next 40 weeks. But of course, if I'm going to read a martyr story and tonight's the first night of Revelation, what makes the most sense? Well, we got to start with the first. And who's the first martyr? It's Stephen, right? It's Stephen. And so when we read uh, this account out of Acts 7, we'll read Acts 7. It starts a little before that. But what's going on is you have the early church, right? The, the, the days of Acts. And the church has just started, and they choose these deacons, these men, deacons, these men who are full of, of wisdom, and, and they're, they're doing the work of the church. And, and one of these men, his name is Stephen. He's chosen to be a deacon amongst the church. And of course, uh, he goes out and, and he preaches this epic sermon that goes through the history of the, of the people of Israel. And what's happening is he's going out, he's debating with the Jews, and they, they kind of raise up a group to like basically do false witness against him to say, hey, this guy's been blaspheming Moses and he's blaspheming the temple and we just got to get rid of this guy. Right? He, he's doing all these evil things. He, he is, he's totally going to destroy the customs of Moses and alter our traditions. And so they bring up these people to accuse him of that. 
And so the high priest actually gets involved, and, and this is the beginning of Acts 7, and I'm going to read it because I want you to hear this story. But this is the first martyr story, the first martyr we ever hear about. Now, originally the word martyr, martyreo in the Greek, it just means to witness. It's actually just a generic word. It means to witness. It was only over time that the Greek word took on the connotation of being killed for witnessing. And why was that? Well, because so often Christians who witnessed were killed for their faith. And so as time went on, this word martyred, which originally just meant to witness to something, took on the connotation of being killed for that witness. That's how we get the word today in English. So we're going to read this story of Stephen before I I start. Here it goes in Acts chapter 7, verse 1, the high priest. He's talking about the accusations against Stephen that he's going to ruin the Jewish faith. The high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen said, hear me, brethren and fathers. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, leave your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. Then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. From there, after his father died, God had him moved to this country in which you are now living. But he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground. And yet, even when he had no child, he promised that he would give it to him as a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke to this effect in his descent, that his descendants would be aliens in a foreign land and that they would be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. And whatever nation to which they will be in bondage, I myself will judge, said God. And after that, they will come out and serve me in this place. And he gave them the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. The patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt. Yet God was with him and rescued him from all his afflictions and granted him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over all Egypt and all his household. Now a famine came over all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction with it, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers there the first time. On the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family was disclosed to Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent word and invited Jacob, his father, and all his relatives to come to him, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down to Egypt, and there he and our fathers died. Well, that took me 10 months to preach that book, if you remember earlier. That's Genesis. He's just gone through the whole book of Genesis, right? He's preaching the story. He's giving them the Old Testament story. From there, they were removed to Shechem, and they were laid in the tomb which Abraham had purchased for a sum of, sum of money from the sons of Hamor and Shechem. But as the time of the promise was approaching, which God had assured to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose another king over Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. It was he who took shrewd advantage of our race and mistreated our fathers so that they would expose their infants and they would not survive. It was at this time that Moses was born, and he was lovely in the sight of God, and he was nurtured three months in his father's home. And after he had been set outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and nurtured him as her own son. Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians, and he was a man of power in words and deeds. But when he was approaching the age of 40, it entered his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. 
And when he saw one of them being treated unjustly, he defended him and took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. And he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. On the following day, he appeared to them as they were fighting together, and he tried to reconcile them in peace, saying, men, you are brethren. Why do you injure one another? But the one who was injuring his neighbor pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? You do not mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday, do you? At this remark, Moses fled and became an alien in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of a burning thorn bush. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight, and as he approached to look more closely, there came the voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Moses shook with fear and would not venture to look, but the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt and have heard their groans and I have come down to rescue them. Come now and I will send you to Egypt. This Moses whom they disowned saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? He is the one whom God sent to be both a ruler and a deliverer with the help of the angel who appeared to him in the thorn bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai and who was with our fathers and he received living oracles to pass on to you. Our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him. But they repudiated him, and in their hearts they turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. For this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has happened to him. At that time they made a calf and brought a sacrifice to the idol, and were rejoicing in the work of their hands. But God turned away and delivered them up to serve the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. It was not to me that you offered victims and sacrifices forty years in the wilderness, was it, O house of Israel? You also took along the tabernacle of Molech and the star of the god Ramphe, the images which you made to worship. I also will remove you beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern which he had seen. And having received it in their turn, our fathers brought it in with Joshua upon dispossessing, dispossessing the nations whom God drove out before our fathers until the time of David. David found favor in God's sight and asked that he might find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house Will you build for me, says the Lord, or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which made all these things? So he's gone up all the way through the book of Joshua now, right? And he's talked about the wilderness wanderings. What's he say next? He's given this great sermon. He's connected himself and his audience to the people of his past, his ancestors, right? We're, we're, the, we're the descendants of these people. All these stories, that's our history. 
the wilderness, being out there, being freed from oppression, repudiating Moses. That's us. And then he says this. Everyone's on board so far, by the way. Everyone's feeling good. The sermon so far, great. It's going to take a turn here. Verse 51. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Now when they heard this, these people were cut to the quick and they began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and they covered their ears and they rushed at him with one impulse. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. And there's Stephen, the first martyr. He knows his history. See, one of the reasons I think that's the perfect place to start is because one of the things Stephen does, one, he's the first martyr. It makes perfect sense. But second is this. Stephen is connecting the story of what's going on with Jesus with the story of his people's past. Because, see, Jesus is not just an anomaly in God's plan. It's not just an accident. What God has been doing is one concrete plan throughout all of human history, throughout all of the created order from beginning to end. We may not have always known it. We've learned it as time has gone on as, as a race. And by race, of course, I mean the human race, right? As a race, the human race has learned this as time has gone on. We've had more and more revealed to us. But we're connected in this story from the Old Testament to the New Testament, and everything that's still yet to happen, right? Everything since creation till now and, and what's left to come. It's one plan. It's one story. And so what we're going to talk about tonight, I know I said we can grasp the message. We can grasp the message of Revelation. But I also don't want to, to you know, give you false hope to say that this is a, a simple book. It's not. It's, it's a, uh, one, it's a masterful piece of art, a great literary work, but it is uh, 
visionary, right? These are, these are strange images to us. They don't make a lot of sense to us. And we have to work to try to understand them. And there's a history of interpretation for understanding these. See, one of the things that's hard about Revelation is that it's still future in some ways. Well, eh, we'll see what the interpretations of that are. But if, there, if, the, if the book of Revelation has anything to say, anything at all to say about what's left to come, if that's the case, then it hasn't happened yet. We, we still are, it's still mysterious to us. See, it's easy for us to look back at Jesus and say, all the prophecies make sense. We sometimes look back at the disciples and we're like, Jesus, Jesus, he, he makes perfect sense of all of the prophecies. How could they not get that? Jesus is it. He is the answer to everything. And that's how we look back. Like, they're, they're just so, they're so dumb. How could they not get it? Well, part of the reason is because it hadn't happened. They were looking at the prophecies. It's like looking through a, you know, a translucent glass. You can't see clearly, right? You can't see perfectly. It doesn't, it hasn't all come together. And that's what's interesting is, you know, generally theology is pretty straightforward. It's set because we're looking at things of the past like Jesus' coming, Jesus' death, and we can put them together now that it's happened. Hindsight's twenty twenty. But interestingly, what we're going to talk about tonight, eschatology, is very convoluted. It's a field that there are countless interpretations and many schools of thought about what it is, how it's understood. And of course, why is that? Why is it so debated? Well, I'd say because we look at eschatology like the disciples looked at the Messiah. The Messiah was all new. How, how is this all going to fit together? They didn't know because it hadn't happened. Jesus was brand new to them. They were piecing it out, but they didn't have all the pieces figured out. Now, after 2,000 years, we can look back at Jesus pretty confidently and say, we understand these things to a large extent. Not everything, obviously. But, but the end of days, we don't have all those pieces figured out. And because of that, we have a lot of interpretations that people have come up with. So for us to approach this book in a way that's going to be helpful to us, that's going to help you make sense of it and help me make sense of it, I felt it was necessary to, to start, before we get into the book, with the terms and definitions night. And so that's what tonight's going to be. It's, I, it's, I'm hoping it won't be too bad. <laughs> But it is a terms and definitions night, and we're going to talk about these different terms that are what's in the field called uh, eschatology, right? That's the study, the study that this goes under in theology. And so we're going to talk about that tonight so that we can all have a framework from which to approach the book. So we're going to go through several layers of this, and we're going to start at the highest layer and then work our way down. So, the first layer is what I just said to you. It's the, the word eschatology, and we'll start there. Eschatology. Eschatology is a Greek word, and it means it's the study of last things. The study of last things. I'll put up this definition that I have. I just wrote these definitions out. That'd be kind of short for you to understand generally. Uh, I don't know that I'll talk much about the definition. I'll probably just do my own thing as we go. But here it is, eschatology, the study of last things. 
So eschatology, that comes from the word eschaton, which is like the last age or the last things, the last, the end, right? And so when we talk about eschatology, we're specifically usually referring to the last things. But what's interesting is that eschatology as a field is much more concerned not just with the last thing, it's actually concerned with everything. Have you ever heard uh, kind of the philosophy that, you know, a, a thing is determined by its end, by its goal? Like, like, what is a seed? What's the goal of a seed? What is it actually? Well, it's actually the plant, right? It's not just a little seed. It, it, its goal is that it becomes a flower. So we talk about, oh, it's a, a flower. It's, you know, it's a, it's a daffodil seed or whatever you want to say, bulb, right? It's determined by what it's going to become because that's its goal. And so eschatology in the same way, although it's, primarily focused on what's the end, what's the goal, it actually has more to do with how God has acted with creation throughout history. It's not just concerned with the end, it's actually concerned with the whole journey from creation on. And so these two, uh, there's two major schools of thought, two major systems that have sprung up throughout the history of interpretation in the church. And these two systems are called, one, dispensationalism, and two, covenantalism, which if I had to guess based on the audience in here, I know you all pretty well. You're probably more familiar with with your tribes that you run in uh, would be dispensationalism, okay? Dispensationalism. Uh, That's more the theological tribe that this group would would run in. Um, So dispensationalism and covenantalism, and we're going to talk about those two next. So if you look at eschatology concerned with, like I said, how God has acted from, from the beginning to now and then into the future, we have these two systems. So there's eschatology underneath the next layer is dispensationalism and covenantalism. We'll start with dispensationalism, probably because it's more familiar. Now, to be fair, I'm going to tell you up front, these are truncated definitions. They're, they're, they're not going to be the fullest definition that you could have, right? I've tried to target these towards the things that were, will matter to us as we study Revelation. I don't want to go through the entire system. I just want to talk about how is this pertinent for us to study the book of Revelation. So dispensationalism, we'll start there. The defining way in dispensationalism that God has acted in history is in different well, what they call dispensations, which kind of gets uh, worked out several ways. Sometimes they talk about them as periods of time, right? These, throughout different historical periods in time, God has operated in different ways. That's one way they talk about it. Another way they talk about it is the economies of God. What's an, do you know what an economy is? It actually is uh, from the Greek word oikonomos, I think, pretty sure that's where it comes from. Um, and it has to do with, with a working out. It's the working out. It's, it's the, household, uh, the household order is actually what it's used to talk about. And so the idea is that there's d- these different household orders, these different economies in which God has worked throughout history. And we can look at them, and, and we're not going to go through each one for their theory, but of course the two major ones they think of are that God has had one economy with the people of Israel, one working out with the people of Israel, and one economy with the church, with the people of the new covenant, right? And these are two different economies. Now, they're not mixed. They're different. 
right? They're separate. And so for dispensationalism, what's key is this. There is a distinction to be had as it relates to the book of Revelation. There's a distinction to be had between the Jews and the Gentiles. And the reason that's important is because when it comes to dispensationalism, generally, the idea is that the end times really are focused on God fulfilling the promises to the Jewish people, the promises that are left yet to be fulfilled. So most of those promises have already been fulfilled for the church, right? We have been grafted into the promises of Israel. This, this is according to their theory, by the way. This is me explaining their theory. So whether I subscribe or not, that's not what I'm saying. We've been grafted into their promises. And we've had that fulfillment. Think about Ezekiel 37. I'm going to revive your spirit. The dry bones will come alive. Has that happened for the church? Well, yes. We've found salvation. Who is that promise to in Ezekiel 37? Do you know? It says specifically for the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It names the two kingdoms specifically in that prophecy. Well, somehow that happened for us. The church was grafted in, but it hasn't yet happened for Israel. How do we know that? Well, well, we know that 7% of, this is 7% of Jews generally are Orthodox Jews. That's just for their own faith. The vast majority of Jews are atheistic at this point, right? Let alone Christian, which of course they openly reject. In fact, to... Now, Jewish Christians wouldn't say this, but the average Jew would say, hey, to be Christian is to not be Jewish. Like that's, they're antithetical to one another. They don't add up. Of course, a Jewish Christian would say, well, no, I found my Messiah. I found the real Messiah. But a, a, a standard, normal, everyday Jewish person would not say that. They would say, no, no, you've walked away from the faith, right, by becoming a Christian. So in dispensationalism, the point is that these two systems are different. And so what God has fulfilled for the church, he still has something yet to fulfill for Israel. There's still something left. All those promises that they've waited for, they've still got to come to pass. And so when we read the book of Revelation, what it really primarily wants to talk about is how is God going to fulfill these promises to the Jews? These long-awaited promises. Okay. Next. Covenantalism. For covenantalism, the defining way in which God has acted throughout history is by covenant. That's why it's called covenantalism. It's by covenant. And so God has had all these different covenants, which he has, right? He had a creation covenant at the beginning. He has this Adamic covenant, right, with Adam. He has a Noahic covenant, this covenant with Noah. What's the covenant with Noah? It's the rainbow, right? You have the sign of the covenant that he's not going to destroy the earth. Everyone can look at it and see that God has promised, right? And then you go on, you've got the Mosaic covenant, right? That's with Moses, and that's the one that really defined the nation of Israel. You've got the Davidic covenant, which is for David, that he'll always have a son upon the throne, all these covenants. And what's interesting about the covenant is that in covenantalism, these covenants work along the way to further explain one another and to really supersede one another. As they go along, 
They take the place of the other one. So when we get to the new covenant, the church's covenant, right? We, we are the people of the new covenant. When we get to the church's covenant, the new covenant has completely superseded the old covenant. The Mosaic covenant, it, it's no longer in effect. What's the way the Jews are going to be saved in the end times? They become part of the church. They believe in Jesus and become part of the church. That's how they're going to be saved, according to covenantalism. There is no Mosaic covenant in effect. They need to get in on board with the real covenant, the one that's left, the best one, which is the new covenant. Okay, so because of that, sometimes this theory is called, it's, it's a, I guess, pejoratively, it's derogatorily often called replacement theory or supersessionism because, you know, the, the church has just replaced Israel. It took over its spot. Israel isn't even really the people of God. You've got to be in the church if you want to be the people of God, right? You want to be people of God, become part of the church, believe in the Messiah, now, to be fair, dispensationalism, I, I guess, if you think pejoratively, sometimes it's just like called crazy or delusional because it tends to be dispensationalism that has had the great excesses we've seen in our lifetime, right? The people who, I, I've got it down to the day. I've got it figured out, right? The, the, the world ends in 1987, right? Those, these real books and real things that have happened. Oh, oh, wait, hold on, it didn't happen. I'm five years off, reset. Oh, okay, got to reset again. That, that kind of like, oh, I've got every step, that tends to be dispensational. Now, I'll tell you openly, I am a dispensationalist, so I say that from in the house. It's often called crazy, the delusional version. I'm a dispensationalist. That's what I believe. Generally, I lean that way. If you know me, you know I tend to be a mediating person, so I tend to thread the needle on things. The thing I like about dispensationalism that tends me to lean that way, this is just so you guys know my biases as we read the book, um, is because I have no doubt that there is promises yet to be fulfilled for Israel. I mean, Romans 9, 10, and 11, that's what they're about. The promises are still to come. God's promises for Israel did not fail. There has to be a future. There has to be a future for Israel. So that is my, my caveat with, with dispensationalism. I, I lean that way. I tend to lean that way because I believe there is a future. But I do think there's some excesses that tend to come in dispensationalism. And if you look at the very far ends of dispensationalism, you know, the, the far end of the spectrum, they have uh, an entirely, in the end days, the, the entire old covenant system, sacrifice and all, will be reset up. And I just find zero way scripturally to justify that when it's so clear in the New Testament. Jesus is the once-for-all sacrifice. If God's working in two different ways with the Jewish people and the, the people of the church, how does that work if Jesus is the Jewish Messiah? He was the once-for-all sacrifice for them first. Now, it came to us because we were grafted in, but it was for the Jews. He says so in John, right? He says so to the woman at the well. Salvation is from the Jews. So I, I never go that far. I don't think the systems are that different. I do believe there's a future for national Israel, though. 
Covenantalism, on the other hand, like I said, if you go very far to the end of that, there's just no future for them. The promise is just like they, the church just absorbed them. And there's nothing left for Israel. Those promises of the Old Testament, that they've been fulfilled in the church. There's nothing left for Israel. And I don't agree with that either. But I do think they are one people. And that's the thing. You can delineate. You can, dis, you can make them distinct. The Jews and the Gentiles. I think you can do that. But they're still the one people of God. You might be able to see them and say, okay, this is the, the Jews, this is the Gentiles, but they're the one people of God. You can't completely separate them. And that's where I think covenantalism is right. Okay, go to the next level. Now we'll go to the millennium, which is a, a standard, very important piece of the book of Revelation in Revelation chapter 20, which is this millennial kingdom, right? He, it says that Jesus will come and reign for a thousand years with the saints, so the question is, what do you do with that millennial passage? And covenantalism and dispensationalism have dealt with it in different ways. So we've seen the highest categories of covenantalism and dispensationalism. Now we've got to understand how this comes down. Because this is all leading us to how we interpret Revelation. <laughs> okay? This is all background so we can talk about how Revelation's interpreted. Okay, so we are left with premillennialism for dispensationalism, amillennialism and post-millennialism for covenantalism, okay? We'll start with premillennial because we started with dispensational. Premillennialism is the idea that Christ is going to return before the millennium. This millennium we hear about in Revelation 20, what is it? Well, according to dispensationalists, it's a usually, it's not always, but usually a literal thousand-year period, like the word millennium implies. It's a literal thousand-year period in which Christ comes to the earth and he reigns on the earth as king. And where is he king? He's king on David's throne, right? It's, he's fulfilling the prophecies. He's the king on David's throne out of Jerusalem, the earthly Jerusalem. So he's king for a thousand years. That's premillennialism. <clears throat> and premillennialism, like I said, this is a real, true thousand-year period that actually happens. And of course, this is where we get that lovely, not controversial at all term, the rapture. <laughs> right? That's a premillennial. Uh, it's a premillennial. It, it's a belief generally because it's just a word that comes from the Bible. When we use the word rapture, it's coming to us from the Latin. It's a Latin translation of a Greek word. That's where we get it. It's out of 1 Thessalonians 5. And we get that word, and it's taken on a whole bunch of meaning. But the people who are really concerned with the rapture are always premillennials. Amillennials, postmillennials, eh, eh, doesn't really matter. But premillennials, it's really important. I'll explain why. I guess I might as well. Why is the rapture so important? Well, because, like I told you, dispensationalists believe that the point of the end times is to deal with the Jews, right? To deal with the Jewish people and fulfill those promises. And that's separate from the act of the church. So why is the rapture so important in premillennial thought? Because the Lord needs to remove the church to deal with the Jewish people. So in premillennial thought, 
since they're dispensational, they say the rapture has to happen because you got to get the church out of the way so that God can deal with the Jewish people and not focus on the church anymore. In fact, he's going back to an old economy. He's going back to an old dispensation. He's been working on the church for a while now, but he never finished up the old dispensation. He's got to bring that to a close. So he raptures the church and deals with the Jews. That's the understanding for dispensationally, generally. Okay? So that's why. So Christ will come, rapture his church, and then, depending on, uh, I'm going to wait on this because I've got three more viewpoints we've got to talk about with, with that. But, so that's the rapture. So there's premillennialism. There's a literal thousand-year period in which Christ will return before that, before the thousand-year period. Now we're moving to covenantalism, which has two different beliefs. Amillennial. Ah is the Greek prefix that just means without. It's a negation. Amillennialism believes that there is no millennial. There is no millennium. It doesn't, it's not a real thing. The millennium is actually symbolic language that the book of Revelation uses to describe what? Just the long time period between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. It's not a literal thousand years. It's a symbolic number. It's a perfectly round, large number. In their view, it's obviously symbolic. It's not literal. There is no millennium in a literal sense because it's a symbolic understanding of the church age. From the moment Jesus came, this millennium started. And when will the millennium end? this church age. Well, it ends when Jesus returns. And so the millennium of Revelation 20 stretches on from the moment Jesus came whoop, until he comes again. And what they're going to say is, <laughs> read the New Testament. Isn't Jesus already reigning? Isn't he already king on David's throne in heaven? Isn't he at the right hand of God? He's already king. This is his reign, the church age. He's reigning from heaven. So that's what amillennial is. Uh, so when, when Jesus returns, which could happen any time, we're not waiting for anything. At any moment, Jesus could come. Right? We don't have to wait for the rapture. The only thing left to happen is Jesus come in this view. So if Jesus comes... What's happening? Well, Jesus is going to resurrect all the believers and unbelievers. The final judgment will happen. And then we'll go to our eternal states, right? The, those who believe go to be with the Lord forever. Those who don't believe go to hell. Okay? That's all millennial. The second view that's also, also covenantal is called postmillennialism, which, like it says, postmillennial, that means that Christ will return after the millennium. Now, they're going to agree with amillennial. The millennium is a symbolic term. It, it, it's, it's not a literal thousand years. It's symbolic. It just means that long inter-advent period, right, between Jesus' first advent, his first coming, and his second advent, the second coming. So it's the same thing in that sense. It's like it's just it's not a literal thousand years. It's been 2,022 years so far. But the thing that differentiates amillennial and postmillennial is this. Amillennial says Jesus can come any moment. It's just going to, it could happen like that. Like 
You just never know. Be watchful, right? Like the scriptures say, be watchful. Postmillennialism believes this, and this is the distinctive of postmillennialism. Postmillennialism tends to have an optimistic outlook for humanity. They believe that gospel conversion, it's going to work. It's going to happen. All those great promises Jesus told us, all those commands, go out and disciple the nations. Be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and in all the ends of the earth. All those things, God's going to make them happen. We're actually going to win the world over. And, and not only are all these people going to, to become Christians, like, and it's not everybody, but it's massive success. The world is going to be Christianized, and it will usher in a great, glorious era like the millennium from premillennials, where righteousness and peace and justice are all over the earth, fulfilling those promises. And in fact, not only that, what's really going to like just supercharge our gospel evangelism, the Jews are going to start believing. They're going to start believing, and there's going to be a massive conversion of the Jewish nation. And then I'll tell you, then gospel, the gospel will be proclaimed everywhere because we're going to have millions of converts. And the whole world will have this Christianized attitude. And then when that has happened, when the world has, has really truly submitted to Christ, then he'll return. Then he comes back. Why? Because it's post-millennial. We lived out the glorious age of righteousness and peace and justice, and then the Lord comes. And once the world's been won, Jesus comes back, and sure enough, what's he do? He resurrects all the believers and unbelievers. We go to judgment before him, go to our eternal states. Believers to be with the Lord, and the wicked, the unbelievers, they go to hell. Okay, so now there's those three views. Now you can see... They're all related to the millennium, very different views of it, very different understandings of Revelation 20. Okay, lastly, we finally got to the book of Revelation, because our interpretation of the book of Revelation almost directly relates to what you believe on those points. The book of of Revelation generally is interpreted based on what you believe about those other things. So this line here, futurist, historicist, idealist, and preterist, that's all related to how you interpret the book of Revelation. Like I told you, it's convoluted. There's a lot going on. So now we're looking at how is this book meant to be interpreted? Well, from a dispensational premillennial view, they're going to say it should be interpreted in a futurist sense. Historicist is an oddball. We'll talk about it. And if you're an amillennial covenantalist, you're going to believe generally. Now, this is not true of everyone, but generally, you're going to be an idealist. And if you're a postmillennial covenantalist, usually you're a preterist because these are influencing how we interpret the book. Now, this is the part, if you haven't been paying attention, I don't blame you. That's fine. But this is the part you want to pay attention to because this is what matters particularly as we think about the book of Revelation. Okay, futurist. We'll start with dispensational premillennial. Futurist. The way to understand the book of Revelation is that the vast majority of the book 
is talking about future events that have not yet happened. Okay? Not all of the book. Usually the stuff in Revelation that people preach, that stuff's not the future. But once you get to chapter 4, and most pastors bow out of preaching the other 20 chapters of the book, they're like, oh, I, I was just doing a sermon series on, on the churches, the seven churches. That was my sermon series. <laughs> most people don't preach on the book because it's that confusing. I've tried to do some of the legwork for you here. My hope is I'll be able to help you understand different viewpoints when it comes to these passages in the book of Revelation. But here we go. Futurist, the way to understand it, that chapter 4 on, chapter 4 to 22, that section is all future prophecies. They have not yet happened because they're detailing the time of the end, that final period of human history. And since they're detailing that final period of human history, <clears throat> uh, we can expect that we have yet to see them. So we're waiting for those events to happen. But the Lord, in His graciousness, in His kindness, has revealed to us what's going to happen through John's visions. So we can look to that and trust that we can have an understanding of what the future holds at that last period. Now, we may not know when the day is, but when the day comes, we'll know what's going to happen. Okay? So... That's what the futurist position is. It's, it's all still forward. So when we read the book of Revelation, we're looking at stuff that God has looked, we're looking into the future. How epic is that? We're seeing what has yet to transpire. Okay? Historicist. Uh, historicist is interesting because historicism generally has almost completely fallen by the wayside as a viable theory for the book of Revelation. Now, it used to be very popular. Its vision has failed so many times that most people have stopped buying into it. Uh, but there are still a few. And I would say at the popular level, people do it all the time. Historicism is the idea that Revelation predicts the events of really since the first century when Jesus came, usually up until the point that I'm living at, whoever I am as a historicist. Whatever I'm living in, that must be the end. So I know that the, Revel the book of Revelation talks about the first century up till right now when I'm thinking about it. It's very personalized, right? It's very real to me. So, for example... Uh, when the Re Reformation was going on, many of the Reformers were historicists. And when they interpreted the symbols, what do you think they usually interpreted them as? Like, for example, who was the Antichrist? Well, if you're a Protestant Reformer, who's the Antichrist? The Pope, of course. It's clear. Catholicism. Ah, old Roman Catholicism. It's from Rome, just like John just like Babylon is a symbol for Rome. Well, we're still dealing with Rome, and that's Catholicism. So the Pope must be the Antichrist, right? And the Middle Ages did it, and everyone does this. And, and, and arguably, I would say that modern-day historicists are a lot of these people who say, oh, I've, like I said, these people who say, I've got it figured out. You know the, you know the scorpions? 
with the tails, like the, the, the flying locusts with the tails of scorpions and the face of men. Those are, Rus- those are Russian helicopters. That's, that's a hind. I know that. I figured it out. It's a Russian helicopter. It's an attack helicopter. And I figured out how it's going to happen when Russia attacks America. Because, of course, America is also in the scriptures, right? That's my point. These people are very, it's very self-focused. The way I understand this book is that it must be applying to this moment in which I am in. And the prophecy started in the first century, but it's happened till right now. And it's happening right now. And I can see it because there's the Antichrist. And that's the beast. And that's the great whore of Babylon. And I've got it all figured out. Okay, that's the historicist position. Like I said, it fails so epically time and time and time again that most people it's, it's just lost favor with, right? Like I said, when you have to keep coming out with consecutive books every year, the world's going to end in 1987. The world's going to end in 1988. People stop, stop believing that really quickly. You know, they'll let you take them for a ride once or twice, but the, the, the third or fourth time, you're like, oh, no, 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 this is the time it's actually going to end. People stop believing generally. Okay, that's historicism. It's worth to know because it's in the history of interpretation, but it's not generally held anymore. Okay, idealist. We're now at the amillennial position. If you are a covenantalist and you are amillennial, there's no millennium. What do they believe about the book of Revelation? The way to understand the book of Revelation is this. It's a book of ideals. That's why they're called idealists. The point of the book of Revelation is to apply to every Christian that has ever lived. John didn't just write it for the first century. John John also didn't just write it for just the people in the end times. He wrote it for everyone. Everyone should understand its message. Everyone should see themselves in that story. Why? Because there's no historical reference in the book at all. It's not talking about future events that are going to happen. It's not talking about events that already did happen. It's just ideals. Things that are generally true in every age. It's like the book of Proverbs, right? Remember when you read Proverbs, you're like, okay, I read this proverb. Okay, I haven't experienced that. Actually, I feel like I'm fairly righteous and I haven't had that much good luck, right? Like, but generally, what God, the way he's created the world, this is how these things work. That's the book of Proverbs. They're proverbial. It's not always the case, but generally, this is the way God's ordered the world. The same is true for how all millennial covenantalists believe the book of Revelation is interpreted. This is a book of ideals. It's showing us images like the defeat of evil, the suffering of the good, that God's going to win out. Those are true forever. They've been, they, if you read that as in the first century as one of John's original readers, that would make perfect sense to you. And if you read it as a reformer in the 1500s or 1600s, that'd make perfect sense to you. And if you read it today, in 2022, you find yourself in that story too. And whenever that end time comes, which may or may not look anything like this, you can read the book of Revelation and see yourself there too. Because everyone can. Because it's a book of ideals. These are not historical events. They're not things that happen. They're, they're things that happen generally. So every age can relate. Okay. Lastly, preterist, which probably 
generally the most, uh, I guess I would say scholarly in a sense, because it's, it's really a scholar's view of the book. <clears throat> That's not to say all scholars believe that, but it's a very scholarly view of the book. Um, so if you're a post-millennial, post-millennial covenantalist, generally you're a preterist. And the reason is, preterism uh, sees all the events of the book fulfilled in the first century. These are not events of the future at all. No. Now, now, let me correct one misconception about preterism, which is this. Most people say, what, so you don't believe it was prophecy? No, 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 no. It was prophecy when John wrote it. It is not prophecy to us. When John wrote it, now they tend, this is interesting, most preterists believe in an early dating for the book, meaning that it was written earlier than most people believe it was written. They believe generally it was written in the 50s or 60s A.D., rather than later, which is what most scholars believe. But they look at it and they say it must be earlier, because if you look at every one of these things in the book, it's talking about the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. And because of that, it must have been written earlier than that, and John was having prophecies about what was to happen soon. And that's a big word for them. Because what John repeats over and over and over in the book of Revelation is these things must take place soon. These things are coming quickly. That idea is throughout the book. And so for the preterists, they go, why does no one take that seriously except us? It's going to happen soon. And to John, that's 20 years away. That is soon. It's not thousands of years away. It's 20 years. It's in his lifetime. He's going to see it. So preterists look at the book and they say everything that is in that book, every prophecy that was a prophecy when it was written, it's all happened. Every word of it, with very few exceptions. Sometimes they'll say the very end has yet to happen. But most people who are preterists say everything in the entire book already took place in the first century. It's a symbolic book. It's not a literal book. Everything in it symbols. If it was literal, I mean, that's how you end up at premillennial. Everything's literal. But when the preterists looked at the book, they go, it's all symbolic. It's all symbols for things that were happening in the first century. And so when they read it, they understand it as it relates generally to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, right? The destruction of that temple. And how that really changed, in their view, it changed the ages, right? That, that really was the cementing of the death of the old covenant, wasn't it? Because what was the center point? We don't think of it like this anymore because it's not true for Jews anymore. But what was the center point of Jewish life? The temple where God's presence dwelt. Now, after that, when you got into rabbinic Judaism, right, all the rabbis, what became the center point? Well, the Torah, God's word, the law. But that wasn't until after the temple was destroyed. The Pharisees who survived this, because they believed their focus was the word, but the other groups, and particularly, obviously, the Sadducees, they, what, what was their focus? They were the priests. Their class died out when the temple died out because there was nothing left for them to serve. Judaism shifted dramatically when the temple was destroyed. And so for the preterists, they say, look, 
This is the end of one age, the end of one covenant with the temple destruction and the beginning of the new. The church is now the focus of everything God's doing. Okay, so that's how they understand the book. We've only got one little thing left. We'll go back to futurist. So now it comes to what, like I said, if you're of a dispensational nature, which is the general theological tribes represented here, um, this question comes up, pre-trib, mid-trib, or post-trib? That's how it's usually phrased. Which are you? How do you believe about the rapture? Okay? And it's, like I said, it's a focal point. It's a focal point for premillennials because God's got to deal with the Jewish people. And so there's three positions about when this rapture, this seizing, if you, if you actually know what the word means, which is interesting, we have all these connotations of what it means. It means to seize something, to snatch it. And so what it means in 1 Thessalonians is the snatching of people, the snatching up. And so when we think of it, it's, the, it's Jesus snatching his people, he's taking them. And so there's three positions generally. <clears throat> uh, pre-trib is the idea that the rapture happens. There's, in the book of Revelation, there's this idea of this great tribulation, the worst suffering that has ever going to happen in human history. Now remember, I, I told you, they interpret the book literally, a literal future event. So this great tribulation is going to come upon the earth, this time of unparalleled trouble, the tribulation. And if that tribulation comes upon the earth, well, how, how is that going to affect God's people? How is that going to affect the church? Well, these three positions are meant to an- answer that. How does the rapture of 1 Thessalonians 5, how does that relate? Well, for pre-tribulationists, the rap- rapture will happen before the tribulation. Pretty self, excuse me, pretty self-explanatory. Pre-trib, pre-tribulation. Christ's return, the positions are named off of when Christ is coming. So pre-tribulation, Christ is coming pre the tribulation. He's coming before it. So in this view, Christ returns in, in an initial experience to receive his church. And of course, like I said, the why, why does he do that? Because he's got to go deal with the Jewish people. And in order for him to deal with Israel... He's got to first take the church. And so the first thing he does before the tribulation is he takes up all the, the church. And then the tribulation happens. And of course, again, I'm not saying this is not a legitimate position, so don't hear me wrong. This is a legitimate position. Many people I know believe it, and many great, great, great scholars I know believe this. So I'm not diminishing the position. But I will say, again, Americans love this position because you don't have to suffer, <laughs> right? It's a nice position. Let's, let's all hope pre-trib is true, because then the church gets out of here, right? That's the nice thought. Pre-tribulation as position, I think, uh, like I said, many people who've studied it very deeply believe this. I'm not downplaying the, the depth of, of study and belief in it. I'm just saying, for the average person who doesn't think about theology very much, they like to hold this position because it's the nice one to think about. Gosh, I'm out of here. I am not going to have to suffer the greatest unparalleled turmoil in human history. I'm gone. So just for hope, it's the one people generally hold. 
And of course, the idea is you get out of here and God deals with the, the Jewish people, with the nation of Israel, and they're here throughout the tribulation, right? The Jewish people are. They become his people left on earth. And there's other people becoming believers and all, all so on during that period. But they're going to have to live through it because they didn't get raptured. But the church who believes beforehand, they're, we're out of here. So like I said, Americans love that. <clears throat> uh, what was traditionally called mid-trib has pretty much lost all adherence. It just, it's too specific. Because mid-tribulation in its original form meant that the exact center point of what they call Daniel's 70th week, the middle of the tribulation, at that exact point, the believers are raptured. And it's just kind of untenable because it's so specific. Because you can't really point that specifically and say this is going to happen then. The, the scriptures are not that clear on the issue. So what's replaced it, what has come in its stead, is called the pre-wrath position. And this is, uh, you know, relatively new in terms of theology. Um, it's interesting, though. It's a very interesting position. And the idea is that we're going to have to live through past the midpoint of the tribulation. And here's why. Because the scriptures seem to say, according to pre-wrath people, that we will see the Antichrist. That we're going to see the Antichrist. We're going to see what's called the abomination of desolation. That he's going to set himself up in the temple and he is going to proclaim himself God. That's what 1 Thessalonians says. And 2 Thessalonians. So, with that being said, um, if we're going to see that in traditional, like in studying in Daniel and Revelation, that comes past the midpoint of the tribulation, past the midpoint of the 70th week in Daniel. And so what these people say is, when is Christ returning? Well, we're going to live through part of the tribulation. We're not going to live through the worst part of it, but we are going to have to suffer the world's wrath, right? So what the Antichrist does and what these people do, we're going to have to suffer that, which is a bummer. But you know what we don't have to suffer, according to this view? You know what we never are told we're going to suffer? We may suffer the wrath of the Antichrist. We may suffer the wrath of the world. But we are people who are not under God's wrath. And so what they say is, before the final period of the tribulation, which is referred to as God's wrath being poured out, he's going to rapture us. It's like he's doing it with both hands, like he's saving his people in one hand and he's judging the wicked in the other. And so we, who are believers, we're not going to experience the wrath of God. We're going to experience the wrath of the world. We're going to experience the wrath of Antichrist, but we're not people meant for God's wrath. He's going to save us out of it. He protects us, and at the same moment, he's judging the wicked. And the worst things you read about in Revelation are what God's going to do to the wicked and the unjust, and they are going to suffer the worst fate. But we are a blessed people, we are a saved people, and we will not experience that wrath because God has protected us from us. He's protected us from it. He's going to keep us safe, right? Okay, so that's pre-wrath. Lastly, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't change that. Before God pours out his wrath, Lastly, it's called post-trib, and <clears throat> post-tribulation is interesting because it's also referred to as historic, historic premillennialism, and there's a reason for that. The reason it's called historic premillennialism is because post-tribulation is the, is the position that the church most likely held for the first 300 years of its existence. 
Now, is the first 300 years of the church's existence equivalent to Scripture? No, it's not. But, pretty weighty testimony that the earliest disciples post-Christ's life after the apostles for 300 years believed this position, generally. That's, that's a weighty testimony. Whether you want to say it's right or not, that's fine, but it was deeply held belief for the first three centuries of Christianity. Post-tribulation, now, and again, I, I just find it interesting because I like thinking about people's bias. That's why I tell you my, my bias. I'm going to tell you that so you know openly, um, and so you can say, oh, I don't know, maybe Jeremy, Jeremy's kind of leans this way, so maybe he's putting too much stock in it. And like I told you, Americans put too much, too much stock in pre-trib, right? Why? Because it's a bias of our experience. Well, why would post-trib maybe be a bias of the first 300 years of the church? Well, mainly because they were in constant persecution. That's why. Post-tribulationism is the idea that Christ's return will be after the tribulation. We're going to have to live through all of it. We're not exempt from any of it. We're going to have to live through the wrath of the Antichrist, and we're really going to have to live through the judgment of God on the earth. But here's, post-trib is not saying we're suffering the wrath of God. They wouldn't describe it that way. They're saying that God is protecting us through it. Right? God, God doesn't have to remove us. He doesn't have to take us out of the way to pour out judgment. He's going to protect us through it. And why would that make sense? Well, because that's what's happened for all of human history. <laughs> Have the righteous ever just like been removed from the picture? Very rarely. I can think of Enoch walking with God and, and he's gone. I can think of Elijah. He was translated to heaven. But on the whole, like, like did Noah escape the flood? Well, he didn't die in it, but he had to live through it. He had to go on the ark and all of it happened. He had to watch everyone die in the waters. I mean, he lived through that. He was protected from it, but he did walk through it. And for most Christians, and like I said, here's a bias piece. For the first three centuries of the church, it was rough being a Christian. So probably the bias is, well, I'll tell you what, I've never escaped any other suffering. I'm watching my friends and family be murdered. I'm watching them get eaten by lions. I'm watching them get covered in tar and put on crosses and burned alive. Doesn't feel like we're escaping anything. So that could be a bias point. But again, the idea is we're going to have to live through it all. But God's going to protect us. He's got our backs. He's going to save us ultimately. And then he'll return after the tribulation, after it's all been done. He'll return and, and save us ultimately, save us eternally. And in each point after that, there's a separated period. This is why it's premillennial for both pre-trib, mid-trib, or pre-wrath, and post-trib. They believe then once Jesus returns, you have a millennial kingdom, the literal thousand years. And then the book goes on to talk about Satan being released again. That literally happens. And then there's a final after the millennial kingdom, the literal thousand year period. Then Satan's released again. There's one final battle. And then guess what? It's done. Resurrection, final judgment, eternal states. That's the picture. Okay, so I've just described to you now with all of this. <clears throat> so, 
post-trib, the rapture is going to happen as Christ returns to begin his millennial reign. That's when the rapture takes place. It's us meeting Christ where you are snatched up to meet him and we come right back to earth to reign with him. That's post-trib. We get snatched to see him and then we walk right back with him to reign on the earth in the millennial kingdom. That's post-trib. <clears throat> um, so with that being said, I have now gone through every major position, eschatological position. Uh, there is. Now, you're going to find people that run the gamut on this, uh, have mixed every different which way and have pulled all them together. And I will openly tell you, um, if, like I said earlier, if you know me, I'm mediating. I tend to be a mediating person. I pull these things together. I don't ever want to be too far to the one side or the other. So when it comes to Revelation, I'm pretty eclectic. I tend to collect bits and pieces from everyone because I think that's what makes sense for me. I think that's what the book says. You don't have to agree with that. You can fall into one of these categories or make up your own version of these categories. Um, but you should read the book and try to understand it. For me, I will tell you where I am at now. And this is actually different than I was. Post-study, I've come out in a different place than I thought I would. Uh, I told you I lean towards dispensationalism. I am definitely a premillennial. Um, I've always considered myself a post-trib person. It's just made sense to me. The weight of the church history is very strong to me to have 300 years of belief in this, uh, and especially the first 300 years is very significant. I think that's weighty testimony. But also, uh, I like them, I just think about the pattern. <laughs> now, to be fair, if there's one unique time to escape wrath, it makes sense it would be the last time, right? The final time. That makes sense, too. I'm not denying that. I just, if you look at the history of Christian experience, and really, again, the Bible doesn't teach us much about this, but if you know anything about church history, if you've ever studied it, it's dark and it's bloody. It's awful. And I just look at the pattern, the history of Christians, and I don't see us escaping anything. I see us dying a lot. That's what I see. So I, just by nature, I feel I lean post-trib. That's how I am. Uh, so I've always considered myself to be a post-tribulational pre-millennial. That's just how I've described myself. After studying this for the last two months, I think I came out as pre-wrath, which is not what I expected because I never would have gone mid-trib ever. Uh, but I, I read uh, some people who, who are pre-wrath advocates, and it actually came out making the most sense to me of the book. <clears throat> uh, just the way that, that they interpret the book makes the most sense about how they're fitting together the Jews and the Gentiles as the one people of God, and that the book is speaking to both of them in different ways, but it's speaking to both of them. But like I said, I, I did not expect that to come out. And to be fair, let's be honest, by the end of this book, I may come out somewhere else. I haven't studied enough to just like say I'm set on this forever. But where I'm at now, so you know my bias, you know where I'm at, I consider myself a pre-wrath, pre-millennial. That's where I'm at right now. Pre-wrath, pre pre-millennial. So there's my bias. But I hope as we study this book together, um, I hope I can explain some of these different views because I... Here's the other thing I believe. Um, I believe that all of these views have things to teach us. And that's one of the things that I love about theology. 
I get I'm I'm generally a very eclectic person. Like I said, I'm a very um, generous person when it comes to like different theological belief. I tend to be very generous with that. I'm not hardline or dogmatic. I'm dogmatic personally in myself, like what I believe, but I'm not dogmatic. I'm making sure everyone else believes the same thing. Uh, And I've found that all these different positions have some really real things to say. And for me personally, um, as it relates to dispensationalism, I have found that the book of Revelation, that these events, many of them, it seems like, have happened historically over and over and over and over and over again. And of course, Revelation is deeply influenced by the book of Daniel, which if you know the book of Daniel, you have, again, same thing, right? People preach the first six chapters. It's the exact same thing. They preach, most pastors, they preach the first six chapters, like, oh, we're just, we're just talking about the narrative. And then you get into Daniel's dreams, and everyone's like, I'm out. I'm out because it gets real weird and no one understands it. Well, that's just like Revelation. And Revelation actually owes a lot of its understanding to Daniel. So these two books are related. And what's interesting is that these images that Daniel used that were almost positive relate to specific historical points that were in the past for John. John updates them and then uses them for things that are either happening 20 years in the future, like preterists say, or still yet to come in the future. Or, as an idealist, they are applicable to everyone. So it works that way too. But all that to say, what I believe, have you ever, have you ever heard this phrase? I'm sure you have. I feel like it comes up more and more now. History repeats itself. That didn't just come out of nowhere. Uh, you know, the Bible talks like that too. It says, there's nothing new under the sun in Ecclesiastes. There's nothing new under the sun. It's all been done before. I mean, all these cliches we have, these sayings, I think there's some truth to them. And the truth is, uh, history does have a tendency to show up these same patterns. Empires rise and empires fall, right? People, kings rise and they fall. You see these things happen over and over. And I think in one sense, I just think that's true about human history, and the way God's work with the world, that we're, the human species is far more alike than we are different from one another. Take any two people at any point in human history, and there's far more they have in common than they ever have different. Because the human experience is actually generally very similar. We focus on the differences, no doubt. But the truth is, the general human experience is very similar. It's very concrete and real. And so because of that, I think we do see a cyclical pattern where some of these things happen again. So I will tell you openly, uh, I view myself in a place in which I see that some of these things, not all, I do believe there's a climactic future antichrist. There's a climactic future tribulation. There's a climactic future uh, like salvation, right? That, the, that what we have, we've experienced salvation according to the scriptures, but there's still a salvation yet to come, Right? that final salvation where we're, we're brought into God's presence, the full presence of the Trinity. I mean, that's the nature of these things. And, and in my opinion, when I look at it, I just see that these things have happened time and time again, and we see them over and over. And when I look at the book of Revelation, generally I think it's talking about that future climactic reality, the one that's yet to come. But at the same time, I'm not surprised that we see parts of it we look at and go, Oh yeah, like I feel like I'm living that right now. 
or that we can look at history and that, like the historicists, like, oh, I get it. Why are there so many people that thought they were living in this throughout history? Because it's relatable. These are relatable things that humans, like the idealists say, they make sense. They make sense of human experience. And some of these things have happened over and over and over again. Not to say they're happening every moment, everywhere. I'm just saying that that history has a way of repeating itself. And these things have happened time and time again. So when I look at the book of Revelation, I see the future climactic version of these events. But at the same time, I recognize many people will relate to this over history. And I recognize that in God's plan, these events seem to have happened in their own way again and again and again. So that's how I approach the book, just so you know. We'll talk about it more, and we're going to do it passage by passage. So like I've told you, we've got, this was necessary, I felt like, because we're going to be in this book for another 39 weeks, okay? So I felt like tonight was a necessary precursor for 40 weeks of study in this one book. But now that you have these basic tools, maybe you'll want to bring your notes with you every week. Might be a good idea. If not, I'm going to print these out. I have these sheets uh, that I can print out each week, and I'll just bring. You can bring with you as a little like cliff notes or whatever, a little you know cheat sheet. Um, but I want to be able to look at the Book of Revelation with you. And I, I'll be honest, I am who I am. I'm obviously going to prior, prioritize what I believe <laughs> and tell you what I believe about the book. But my hope is. As we study it together, I can tell you when, when preterists look at this passage, here's what they see happening in the first century. When an idealist looks at this book, what do they see? What do they see as the principles that stand out that everyone can relate to? Right? When, when we're futurists are looking at this, what is this climactic thing that's going to happen? I want to be able to do that for you. Because like I told you, I, I think every bit of this brings something to the table for us. And my goal is always to, I'm just that person who I want everything good I feel like belongs to me, (laughs) you know? It's all ours for the taking. So take the good and and push out the bad and, and, you know, forget the stuff that's not good, that doesn't work, that's not right. But if there's many traditions that have good things, let's, let's, let's claim them all as ours. That's just how I think. So my hope for you is to help teach you the book of Revelation through that lens. Like, let's look at this through many lenses and see where you lie. Because ultimately, my goal as a teacher, my goal as a preacher, is not that I would just tell you what I believe. My goal is that you would search the scriptures yourself and come to know what you believe. And I feel like the best way I can do that in a a God-honoring, helpful way for you is to show you many viewpoints and let you look at the scriptures and decide for yourself. Because that's my goal. My goal is that you guys would love scripture the way that I do. That you would search it, and that you would know the heart of God in it. So I'm looking forward to these next 40 weeks. I'm looking forward to studying this book with you, and I hope no matter where you land on the eschatological scale, any one of these points, whether traditionally or as time goes on, you find yourself there, when it makes sense to you, like, oh, this makes sense out of this passage to me. Uh, I hope, I hope that no matter what throughout this series, uh, you'll see that this book is the book of comfort.
that it will bring peace and rest and comfort to your souls as you realize that no matter what system, you know, no matter where you are, any one of these spots, what you see at the end of the book is this. God is our God. We are his people. And he's going to dwell among us. Jesus' return. We're waiting for it. We're waiting for it. We're waiting for the resurrection of our bodies. And that ultimately, God's going to win. Evil has no chance. This is not something that we're waiting to see the outcome of. We want to see the outcome of it. But we don't have to wonder whether the outcome's going to come to pass. God wins. And that's what the book is. That's what the book's doing to give us comfort. I hope you'll see that as we study. Tyler, you want to close us up in a prayer?